Hey, church family, so good to be with you again on this Sunday to worship together and praise God together. As I've said the past few weeks, just to remind you that we are meeting together outside in the church parking lot in the back of the church parking lot, and we'd love to have you come join us, but we also know that you're, not everybody is quite comfortable with that just yet, and so we, we respect that, and we still love you and care about you, and so glad that you've chosen to worship with us online uh, this morning, and so glad that we can all get together, whatever capacity it may be in, whether it's in person or online, to, to know that we are still one body worshiping together and praising our God for all that he's done for us, and so that we're, we're glad that you've joined us today and this morning. I heard a story about a newly married couple. They were supposed to meet some friends of theirs for a, a nice dinner one evening, but they were kind of running late and in a bit of a hurry trying to get ready. And so, in the midst of them frantically both trying to get ready, the husband and wife trying to get ready, the husband said to his wife, He said, Honey, will you iron my shirt for me? And the wife patiently said, sweetie, I don't have time to do that right now. I'm trying to get ready myself, and so you're going to have to iron your shirt by yourself. To which the husband then replied, not so smartly, but honey, my mama always ironed my shirts for me. <laughs> if human eyes, if God had equipped human eyes with lasers, then he would have been disintegrated. But then that, that wife, that young wife, that new bride uh, told her husband five words that would radically inform their marriage moving forward. I am not your mama. You know, for, for some people, when they get married, they sometimes tend to expect their wife or their husband to do for them what their mom or their dad did for them. And any relationship that's going to grow, any relationship that's going to thrive or last will at some point across the you know, board, somewhere along the lines, is going to have to have some conversations about expectations. In fact, that's one of the first conversations that I have when I do premarital counseling is, is how do we have some perspective when it comes to the expectations we have for marriage and for our spouse. And this is also true when it comes to our relationship with God. Truth be told, we have our fair share of expectations when it comes to him as well. And then we have those moments and those times where he doesn't behave as we expect him to behave or as we want him to behave. And those moments can, can certainly be frustrating, even disheartening, but they can also be learning opportunities. God doesn't always perform as we expect, and there will be times when he will make it quite clear and in essence say to you and me, I'm not your mama and I'm not your daddy. And in a sense, that's a good thing, but it also can present some challenges to our faith. And so today, we are going to begin a journey through the book of James in our New Testament that is very much about when faith is challenged, when faith is put to the test. And I think it will also be very much challenging to our faith as we study and walk through it. It's a book in many ways that clarifies expectations about life, clarifies expectations about God, and, and, and ultimately clarifies what it means to live out our faith and to have a faith that works in the real world. And when I say a faith that works, I mean that in a couple of different ways, or more specifically, I think James 
highlights it or, or, or frames it in a couple of different ways. For one, faith that works in a sense that, that, it, that it works. It, there's, there's action to it. It's not a dead faith. It's not a sterile faith. It's a faith that's accompanied by action. You know, we don't just talk about it. It actually is lived out. But also, secondly, a faith that works in the sense that it practically works. You know, it's not just some theoretical, ethereal, pie-in-the-sky kind of thing that sounds much better in theory than it is actually in practice. No, it's a faith that works. Faith works. It practically works and makes a difference in our lives and in the world around us. And so if you want to have a faith that works, a faith that's marked by action, and a faith that practically makes a difference in your life and in the world through you, then James is for you. And my hope, that, my hope as we walk through this book is that it will help to bring some clarity, some focus, maybe even some peace when it comes to us having a faith that works and living it out in the real world. But before we jump in, let me just give you a little bit of background to this book of James, specifically to the author. There's a couple of Jameses that we read about, a couple of Jameses in particular that we read about in the New Testament. Both of them are... Uh, They're both Jesus' apostles. They're both within his inner circle of 12 disciples uh, that Jesus had with him and and taught very exclusively to. Uh, One is James, the son of Zebedee. The other is James, the son of uh, Alphaeus. Those two James, though, this is a different James than either of those two Jameses. James who wrote the book of James is different than those two. This James is actually Jesus' half-brother. In Galatians chapter 9, he's even called, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 9, Paul actually calls him a pillar in the church at Jerusalem. Now, just to be clear, James, the son of Zebedee, was also a leader in the church of Jerusalem during that time. And that James was actually beheaded by King Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12. That James is not this James who wrote the book of James. This James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the one who leads the church in Jerusalem beyond Acts chapter 12. And while the Apostle Paul is noted for being the one who brings the gospel of Jesus to the non-Jewish world, uh, this James is noted for helping to bring the gospel to other Jews and to tell them about Jesus. He's also noted for encouraging other Jews who were already following Jesus, which helps kind of explain the opening of the book of James. When James writes in verse 1 of chapter 1, he writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Now that may sound like a little bit of odd language when he says to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, but James is talking to a, a group of Jewish believers. He's writing to Jewish believers who've been driven from their homeland driven from their, their, their faith community by persecution. In fact, we read about this persecution earlier in our, a couple months ago in our Going Viral series. And so these are believers who've been driven from their homeland, driven from their faith community there in Jerusalem, and they're scattered all over the place. And James comes along and basically he says, okay, it's time to put your faith to work. You've been, you've been driven out of Jerusalem because of persecution. You've been driven from your homeland. You're scattered everywhere. I know times are hard, but it's time to put your faith to work. James is about a, a demonstration of your faith with your life and not just a proclamation of your faith 
with your mouth, even when times are hard. You know, the past few months, uh, we've been talking about that proclamation of our faith and how important that is to proclaim our faith to the world around us. And that is of utmost importance. But James comes along and he says, so is the demonstration of your faith. Because you can't just talk about it. You got to live it. And so in the midst of proclaiming it, we need to demonstrate what our faith looks like and demonstrate a faith that works. And that we live in a world that so desperately needs to see a faith that works. Amen? And especially over these past few months, our world around us needs to see from us as Christians a faith that works. And so often a faith that works is best revealed when times are hard. In fact, it's when life gets hard that faith does some of its best work. And speaking of life getting hard, that's exactly where James begins. And so let me just give you a few things here that we, that we see right in the first 12 verses of chapter 1 of James that I think James reveals about a faith that works when times get hard. And, and the first one is this. A faith that works allows room for life not working. A faith that works allows room for, God, room for life not working. Working. Listen to the very first sentence that James gives right after his introduction. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Notice that James doesn't say if you face trials of many kinds. He says whenever you face trials of many kinds. Handling trials is not an elective course in life that you can opt out of. Trials are, are, are not an elective course. They are a, a required course. James, his own brother, this is James who wrote the book of James, his own brother turned out to be the son of God who rose from the dead, turned his world upside down in a good way. And yet that still didn't mean that his life was trial free. Jesus, you know, giving his life for us, dying for our sins and being raised from the dead doesn't mean that you and I are going to have a completely trial-free life. It's not a question of if we will face trials. The question is when we face trials. And remembering this, I think, can do a couple of practical things for our lives. For one, it will prepare you to not be so shocked or easily off-ended when your world is rocked, because your world is going to be rocked. Make no mistake about it, your world is going to be rocked at times. For the last nine years, the UN has put out an annual survey and publication of the happiest people on earth. Who are the happiest people on earth? What's the nation who is the happiest people on earth? And for this year, that title went to the Finns, the people from natives of, of Finland. Finns were deemed to be the, the happiest people on earth. In fact, the Finns have won that title now for the third year in a row. By the way, uh, us as Americans, we barely crack the top 20. We're one of the wealth, wealthiest nations on earth, and yet we barely crack the top 20 in the, in the top uh, happiest nations on earth, according to statistics, at least. And so they were talking about an article I was reading. They're talking about why are the Finns so happy? You know, why, why do they keep winning the, this title? And it turns out that it has something to do with their expectations. Now, there are other factors involved as, as well, but the Finns rank near the bottom when it comes to their expectations for the, the way life works out and the way life should work. It's, it's like they almost expect that things are going to go wrong. 
They expect that things won't always work out, and so they're thrilled when things do work out. Why? Because they have such low expectations. Where do you think us as Americans rank when it comes to our expectations for where life will work out? Number one, we are right at the top, baby. We are number one in, in our expectations for how life should work out because we live in a world of push-button technology and we expect 100% performance all the time, not 90, not 95%. We expect 100%. We live in a world of, of warranties. We live in a world where promise me perfection or I'm not going to buy it. Things ought to always work out, period. However, we're in the you know, barely cracking the top 20 when it comes to the happiest people on earth. Why? Because things so rarely work out the way you expect them to. Amen? The Finns are, are better than us as Americans when it comes to expecting trials and life not working the way we think it should. James must be a Finn, right? <laughs> because he, he comes along and he says, listen, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, not if, but when. Now, let me just be clear. Let, let, let me also explain something. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not advocating for us all being pessimist and walking, out, walking around with this pessimistic attitude. I, I'm simply saying that there's got to be some kind of awareness when it comes to our, our expectations about how life is going to go and about how things work out so that we're not so easily shocked or off-ended when our world is rocked and things don't work out because that's the reality. Our world's going to get rocked sometimes. Things don't always work out. And here's something else I think that will help us understand. I think it helps us understand that, or helps us to see that faith and being in a relationship with God does not protect you from adversity. Be, giving your life to Jesus Christ and having a relationship with him and a relationship with God does not protect you from all adversity. Sometimes you'll run into some, some faulty theology out there, and it's out there, that can lead you to believe that if you're a believer, that somehow when you give your life to Jesus Christ, it's all just going to be roses. And, and, and that somehow you're protected from certain adversity that other people in our world who are not Christians are not protected from. But let me be clear. Faith is not an insurance policy against adversity. It's, it's just not. Faith is not an insurance policy against adversity in this life, but it is a way forward in the midst of that adversity. And that leads me to a, a second thing I, I want us to see in regards to a faith that works that James, I think, highlights. Secondly, a faith that works must be tested in order to be strengthened. A faith that works must be tested in order to be strengthened. That's really the, the theme of verses 2 through 4. James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James begins with a pretty tall, tall order. James says to consider it what when we face trials of many kinds? Pure joy to which we want to say, excuse me? You know, that word for consider in the Greek word, consider it pure joy in the Greek is a word that's out of the world of finance. It literally means to count, 
to evaluate, to gauge the value of something. You see, it's easy to read this and think, well, I don't, I don't feel the emotion of joy when I go through a trial. To which I would say, I'm 100% with you on that. I, you know, it's really hard to feel the emotion of joy when you're in the midst of a trial or an adversity. But don't put so much pressure on yourself because that's not what James is saying. What he is saying is consider it. Think about it. Take a step back from the trial, from the adversity, and consider the value of it. He's calling us to a mindset about trials. And he goes on to say why you and I should, should count it as such. Because we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. Literally, patient endurance. And perseverance, patient endurance, has to finish its work so that we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Those words, mature and complete, nobody uses those words more than James. That's an important quality to him as he's writing this, filled with the Spirit. Those words are going to come up again and again. Why? Because James assumes something here. He assumes that you and I actually value being mature and complete. Because here's the deal. The degree to which I consider it joy when I face a trial is related to the degree to which I value maturity. The degree to which I can count it pure joy when I'm going through a trial, not the trial itself, but what God is doing, is in direct correlation to the degree to which I value maturity. Do you understand what I'm saying? James comes along and he says, look, the trial, the trial itself, it, it doesn't have to be good, but the trial puts you in a position to mature. Well, that's great news, right? If I value maturity. And yet, truth be told, far too often when I look at my life, especially how I respond in the midst of adversities and trials, I'd have to say that God's a lot more interested and concerned with my maturity than I often am. But I want you to understand this. You don't consider it joy, pure joy, when you face trials and, and adversity because you have some psychotic dysfunction, okay? <laughs> you don't consider it pure joy because you have some kind of, you know, mental, you know, thing that wants you to, to, to suffer and go through adversity. What he's saying is that you're able to see the trial and realize, okay, God works in the midst of this trial for my maturity, by the way, James spends no time worrying about the source of the trial. What's more important to him that, that he wants us to know is that God's at work in the midst of the trial, whatever it is and whatever the source. And while trials can so often get the best of me, they also so often bring out the best in me when it comes to bringing glory to God. There was a research project done several years ago at the University of, of California at Berkeley. They were doing experiments on the life cycles of amoeba. They were studying uh, something about the life of some of the smallest and, and simplest life forms on the planet. And, and one of their experience, experiments was to introduce amoebas to a perfectly stress-free environment. Ideal temperature, ideal moisture, uh, never-ending food supplies. These amoebas got to live in a world that we all want to live in, right? Because whatever might cause these amoebas discomfort or heartache or stress was being removed. And so it's, it's a perfect world for these amoebas to live in. And yet, would you believe that every single one of those amoebas 
died. Every single one of them. What if there's something about life and development of, of all living things that requires some challenge and resistance? What if the reality that you and I dream about as Americans, that we're, where we're constantly absorbing and, and consuming, letting it all come to me, having everything on my terms. I mean, we, we fantasize a, about a world like that. But what if that reality would only actually lead to our deterioration? I came across an article that was in, written in the New York Times called What Suffering Does. And this is from a a secular perspective, mind you, but I just want you to listen to what the article says. Here's what the writer says. We live in a culture awash in talk about happiness. In one three-month period last year, more than a thousand books, three-month period, more than a thousand books were released on Amazon on that subject. But notice this phenomenon. When people remember the past, they don't only talk about happiness. It's often the ordeals that seem most significant. People, listen to this, people shoot for happiness, but feel formed through suffering. Let me say that again. People shoot for happiness, but feel formed through suffering. It's interesting that the word James uses for testing in verse 3, and again he uses it in verse 12, is a word that a potter, it's the word dokimos, it's a word that a potter would stamp on a vessel that came out of the fire without cracking. So a potter would put a vessel in a fire or in a kiln to, to harden it, and if the vessel survived, he would stamp the word dokimos on it. Now understand that the potter's intention when he puts that vessel into the fire is not to destroy it. The intention is to strengthen it, right? To make it stronger. Fire is not an option, it's a necessity. The same can be said for, for precious metals, gold, silver, platinum. They're all of infinitely more value when you melt them down and refine them than they are in their raw form. And that's in many ways the way it is with faith. A faith that really works is going to have to have some meltdowns. But it's also going to require our cooperation at some level, which leads me to a third thing I want you to notice here, a faith that works, ask God for wisdom and not just why. A faith that works, ask God for wisdom and not just why. James goes on to say in verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Trials and adversity, you notice this in your own life, even, even in people who are not Christians. Trials and adversity just seem to, to often direct people's attention heavenward. But what's interesting here is what James says to do. He says nothing about asking why, but instead he says that we're to ask for wisdom. Most everybody will lift their eyes heavenward when they're going through a trial and, and, and they'll ask why. why. Why? Why am I going through this? And I'm not saying that that's bad or, or wrong, but James is calling us to push beyond that because he says nothing about asking why. He's not saying that's wrong, but he says nothing about asking why, but instead he calls us to ask for wisdom. God never promises 
to explain himself or his actions in the midst of any adversity that we're going through. He never promises that. So you can ask him why. There's nothing wrong with that. Again, you can ask him why, but he never promises to explain himself. What he does promise to do is to be with you and to give you wisdom when you ask for it in the midst of the adversity. Wisdom for what, you say? Well, perhaps it's wisdom to see it more from his perspective. Perhaps it's wisdom to to have a better view of him and and what he's doing in the midst of the trial or, or wisdom for how to respond in the midst of the trial or the adversity. And James says, God's going to give it generously to all without finding fault. In other words, God wants to give it to you. So push beyond asking God why. When we we stay in that mindset of why, it only leads us to be tossed back and forth. Like he says, you know, like a wave in the sea, we're just tossed back and forth. We're double-minded because we're we're always asking for why and and we're trying to to figure out and we're dealing with our emotions. And James says, push beyond the why and ask God for wisdom. Because listen, the trial isn't going away. Now, Sometimes God will remove it, but most of the time the, 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 the trial isn't just poof, going to go away. And so you've got to respond to it. And there comes a time when you and I have got to move beyond the why and ask God for wisdom for how to respond in the midst of the adversity. Speaking of wisdom in the midst of trials, James then moves to a particular trial that they were dealing with. And it's a trial that, that you and I deal with as well. It's a trial concerning money and material possessions, which leads to another thing about a faith that works. A faith that works keeps the material world in perspective. A faith that works keeps the material world in perspective. Verse 9, James writes, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. It was, it was easy in that culture, and still easy in our culture today, to be deceived by money and material possessions. Back then, and again, even today, those in humble circumstances could be led to believe that God wasn't on their side or or that he wasn't at work in their lives. In Jesus' day, many people thought that if you were poor or if you were sick, it was because of something you did or maybe something that your parents had done. And the thought was that if you you were in humble circumstances, you were poor, you were sick, you were in those humble circumstances, it was because God had left you or he's no longer with you. On the flip side, if you were wealthy, then it's obvious that God was approving of you. That's why you were wealthy, because you had the favor of God. But James turns everything, everything upside down with wisdom from heaven. He knows better. He says, look at it this way. Those of you in humble circumstances, you haven't been left by God. If anything, God's at work more in you, even in the midst of your challenge. You're in a high position. God sees you. He notices you. He's with you. And he's doing something in your life and through you. And I know some of you would probably be thinking, or some of them probably would be thinking, please, I don't want so much divine attention from God. But James is saying, this isn't a sign that God has left you. You're in a high position. God is at work in your life. He sees you. Then James says something to the wealthy who are scattered as well. He says, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they'll pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. What's he talking about here? Well, I think he's talking to a couple of different groups of people that have been scattered. One group of people is those who used to be wealthy, but they are no longer. 
they lost their business, they lost their resources when they had to leave Jerusalem, and they've been forced to start over. But then I also think he's talking to another group of people as well. I think he's talking to a group of wealthy people who have yet to lose the job, lose what they have, the jobs, the resources, but they will at some point. As someone once said years ago, you had Stephen Jobs and Bob Hope and Johnny Cash, and now today you have no job, no hope, and no cash. <laughs> Things change, don't they? And as difficult as a season as that may be, James says that when that happens, one should take pride in that moment since they will pass away like a wildflower. In other words, when you lose something that you've had that's of material value and worth, that's actually an opportunity to be reminded of what truly matters and what doesn't, of what's really of value and what's not. You see, we have such a tendency to be deceived by material possessions and, and resources and what's truly of worth and value. And to the poor, James says, don't think that because you're poor that God's left you. If anything, he's with you. He sees you and he's at work maturing you. And to those who have something but you're going through the trial of losing it, James says, I know it's demoralizing and it's disheartening to lose whatever it is that you may be losing or whatever it is that you've lost that you can't get back, but allow God to grow you through it. See it as an opportunity to lock on to what's truly important and what truly matters. Because sometimes it takes losing what you can't keep anyway to help you learn to rejoice in what you can't lose. And speaking of that, leads me to one final feature of a faith that works when times are hard. A faith that works keeps the eternal in focus. A faith that works keeps the eternal in focus. James says in verse 12, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Confidence in what's ahead in the next life can enable you to experience joy in this life, no matter what may come your way, even in the hard times. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Some of you are going through some incredibly tough times right now. Some of you are suffering profoundly. And I want you to know that we love you and we care about you. And more importantly, God loves you and cares about you. And in no way do I want to diminish or downplay what it is that you're going through. But I want you to understand what Paul is saying. I want you to hear what he says. Because as terrible as it may be, as, as disheartening and, and, and heartbreaking and gut-wrenching and overwhelming as what you're going through may seem, it's still not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in you one day. And I know sometimes it's hard to see that in the midst of the trials and the adversity, but it is the truth. That's why it's so important for us to keep the eternal in focus. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. 
since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Whatever we face in this life, no matter how bad it seems, what is ahead is so much greater that whatever we face in this life will be considered but light and momentary. You see, Jesus never promised that following him would be easy. In fact, he often promised the opposite. In this life, you will have trouble, he said. He, he never promised that following him would be easy. He just didn't. But what he did promise is that following him would be worth it. There's so much more for us to discover on our journey through James, but for now I'll leave you with this. A faith that works must be true in this world. And if it's gonna be true, then it's gonna have to be tested. You cannot choose your circumstances, but you can choose your perspective. And there are moments when it's quite clear that God's not your mama and he's not your daddy, but he is your father who loves you and who knows what's best, even when it seems like things are at their worst.